Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Ladies and gentlemen. uh... Can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, so, uh, in part because I was a little bit of out, out of the loop for like the six weeks before we had the holidays, um, I didn't realize that we were going to go completely dark on podcasts. Um, or at least that was the plan, which is, I guess, apparently what we did last year. But I felt like, uh, first of all, I've skipped enough work and I start to get really worried about um, atrophying if I don't maintain things. And plus, I think it's, this is a time of year where people actually appreciate if you come up with new content because there's so little new content out there. And part of the whole point of our business model is to get... uh to be part of the habit forming experience of to provide habit for, for habit forming experiences for our subscribers and for our listeners. And that means we got to show up. And, um, and since I'm not going away anywhere, you put it all together and I was like, let's do a podcast because I'm available. And, um, and I had to find someone who was also available who could roll with the punches, who's a fan favorite. And uh, so my first choice, no one canceled. This was my first choice, uh, was my colleague uh, now at the Dispatch, formerly my colleague at National Review, Kevin Williamson. Welcome back to The Remnant. Hey, yeah, we can't do the uh, who canceled thing anymore, I guess, since I'm uh, I you're on payroll staff these days. Yeah, yeah uh, you, once you start getting a check, you know, you're just sort of expected to be there. It's not a, not a, not a pinch anything. But you know, so this is an audio podcast, and so I have to let let listeners know what they're not seeing, which is... I turn on my camera this morning and there's Jonah Goldberg wearing an econ top beanie and a shirt with a, is that a cow? It is a cow. It's from the San Juan County Fair in the San Juan Islands. Yeah. The San Juan County Fair in the San Juan Islands. I didn't know there were econ talk beanies. Um, I tend to think that it should be one of those beanies with a propeller on top. You know, I think that's, uh, that's fair. Um, Oh, by the way, since you brought that up, uh, a couple of things, I didn't know there were econ talk beanies either until I unwrapped a present from my wife. Um, and, uh, and it wasn't a lump of coal, but like there were things I would have preferred more than an econ talk beanie, but it was fine. It was funny. I wear it. It's warm quality stuff. I recommend it to people. Um, but I just brought this up on the glop podcast with pod and Rob long, the inventor of the propeller beanie, which you brought up unbidden was also the author of the short story that led to the movie They Live. Isn't that great trivia? <laughs> that is great trivia. I'm wondering how you came across it. Well, I did a big piece for it. I'm fascinated by uh, They Live. Um, you know, uh, what's his name? Um, this is the giant G- insects movie, right? I don't think I've ever seen no, it. No, 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 no. That's them. H.G. Wells, giant ants. 
they live is with Rowdy Roddy Piper. Um, oh, in the glasses where he can see what's yeah. going on. Uh, the magic glasses. Yeah, I remember that one, yeah. And, uh, uh, is that Roddy the, Piper in that? That is. He's, oh, he's, he introduces the line, I've come here to do two things, chew gum and kick ass, and I'm all out of gum. Yeah, um, yeah, into the popular that. vernacular. But, uh, and it's got one of the best uh, uh, one-shot fight scenes in all of um, cinema. But, um, but you know, what's the... What's the the crow the the Serb philosopher guy uh, Zizek is that how you pronounce it Slavoj Zizek Slavoj Zizek uh, he is considered he considers they live to be arguably the single greatest uh, Marxist film of the, like the last half century and there are all sorts of Marxist uh, journal articles about its pristine Marxist ideological or neo Marxist or cultural Marxist um, Bona fides is, is one of the great pieces of Marxist art. What, what is the argument, if you can uh, press it for us? Um, so in short, um, I mean, some of it is very vulgar Marxism that really just they cram down your throat. Like when he puts on the glasses, he realizes that all advertising is really enforced conformity where like he puts on the glasses and instead of a Sports Illustrated model, it says procreate and behave. Um, it says, you know, instead of, uh, of when you, the BMW on front of car and driver disappears to a generic plain text saying something like, uh, work hard and obey the rules, you know, that kind of thing. And so that's a very sort of, I mean, as you know, well, know that's a very sort of Frankfurt school, um, uh, advertising is manufactured, uh, you know, uh, desire, um, that where they turn wants into needs, they turn luxuries into like tools of oppression and all that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, basically everything else is an opiate of the masses. And the real, and the reality is, is there is an overlord class of the, uh, that is exploiting the labor theory of value. Um, it happens to be that they are skeletal aliens with glowing eyes, which you can only see when you wear the glasses. They aren't the Jews. Um, but they might as well be in Marxist theory. And, um, so anyway, it's, it, I don't think it's like a brilliant Marxist commentary. Neither did John Carpenter who made it. Um, but the, the Marxists want to claim it as, as one of their own. Yeah. Well, I think there's, I mean, I'm not sure. I, I hardly even remembered the movie, so I'm, I'm not an expert on it, but I think there is something to, um, sometimes people make movies that have a particular sort of readable political sensibility that's not what they meant like um so lena dunham is not a conservative but i think girls is is really really very very conservative in the sense that it's whether she intended it to be that way or not this cautionary tale uh about making really really bad life choices for yourselves and things that make people unhappy i have this little kind of mini argument that um a lot of great art and entertainment ends up being conservative irrespective of the political intent of the of the creators because conservatism should be you know based on on truth and things that are eternally true that's why the wire is so pleasing right because as david simon right. the guy's name he's such a big lefty and the show is just so it's it's like it was written by aei uh you know yeah, no, he, and he hates i mean I, i've written about this you've written about this I, he hates that claim yeah. and yet the entire thing is an assault on urban liberal democratic politics and, yeah. you know, um, and it's kind well, of I think amazing. What really drives him crazy about it is that um, by admitting that he would admit that he actually has something in common with people like you and me, 
Right. Right. There's this um, thing that people do sometimes when they just discover points of commonality with people that they think are supposed to be their enemies. They think, well, where have I gone wrong? Or is this person pretending? Right. You know, when, when you, you come out, look, well, actually, you know, we, 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 we tend to think that probably the law should allow people to uh, organize their lives however they want to, including if they're gay or that, you know, this, that, or the other thing, or maybe there are some problems with policing that we should talk about. And uh, then suddenly they have to recoil away from that because there are these, there might be open-minded, decent people on the other side. I remember being in New York city and talking with this woman who was um, kind of a cartoon upper West side uh, liberal. And um, she was really very surprised to find out that I didn't have um, really sort of, you know, angry, hateful attitudes about, about gay people. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're, you're not a homophobe at all. And <laughs> I told her, you know, I'm a theater critic and I live in Tribeca. I have not organized my life around <laughs> avoiding gay people. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a very strange, strange thing that people have. I think maybe we do some of that too on, on our side. For but, sure. Um, you know, if, if, you know, suddenly, uh, when, when Paul Krugman makes a good point about something, we have a hard time, you know, admitting it. It stings. It can sting when Paul Krugman says, <laughs> fortunately, it's so rare that. <laughs> Actually, um, he had a really good column a couple of weeks ago on Biden as economic nationalist and, you know, Biden sort of continuing and deepening the, the Trump trade policies. And first of all, it's always good when Paul Krugman is writing about the thing he knows something about yeah. than all the things that he doesn't know anything about. That's true. But also he can be really um, illuminating and um, and genuinely independent when there's not this right wing, left wing dynamic going on for him to have to, to, to work against. You know, when he's just being an economist and a popularizer of economic ideas and economic analysis, um, he can be really quite good on that stuff. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I mean, like his. His 1990s stuff for Slate particularly on competitiveness. I mean, his essay on competitiveness is still one of the best statements on all of that stuff I've ever read. And admittedly, he was a little driven by the fact that he got screwed. He thought he got screwed over by the Clinton administration. The so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so bile helped as well, but um, no, I, I agree. And I try really hard. The list of people who got screwed by Clinton and didn't end up doing anything interesting in life is, is very long. Indeed. Um, and in all of the double entendre ways that we could come up with. Um, yes. and, um, I was going to leave that implicit, Jonah, but I understand. Make I, the subtext the text. That's, that's um, do, sometimes, you know, you have to hold up the sign to the audience and say, <laughs> applaud. Um, so th- this is a little bit of a segue, but um, so I've been trying not to get too deep sucked in. Cause I could see it as being one of these things that you can just get obsessed with, with the Sam Bankman freed. That's not, that's, uh, how you, yeah. that's right. Um, but, uh, there's this weird sort of obsession with protecting his version of effective altruism. And, um, and the thing I just thought would be a good Kevin Williamson column. So I figured I'd bring it up is, we could probably brainstorm, maybe not on the spot live on a podcast, but um, an enormous number of instances where adjectives do all sorts of heavy lifting, often in a very invidious way, right? Because first of all, <laughs> say you were an altruist and a philanthropist. Social for the last, justice. Right. So like for like the last 30 years, you've been giving your money away to good causes, your Bill Gates or, or whatever. And people say, no, 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 no. What we, what we need is effective altruism as it's the impl- implication is 
no altruism has been effective prior to this. I remember when Vox started, and I have complicated views about Vox then and now, but I don't. The phrase, uh, uh, the phrase explanatory journalism always really bothered me because it's like, what, what, what other kind of journalism is there than explanatory? I mean, journalism is supposed to explain what's going on and what happened. I mean, I understand there's a boutique version of it. It's obfuscatory journalism, I suppose, <laughs> which uh, there's, there is a good deal of, I'm afraid, out there. I have to say, sometimes our old boss and friend, uh, William F. Buckley, could be a high practitioner of obfuscatory journalism because you had to you had to really sort of pick through the gothic ornaments and cobwebs to figure out exactly what the sentences meant. But um, that's something a little different. Um, do you have a take on on explanatory, not explanatory journalism on effective altruism? Yeah, I think there's. Um, you're familiar with the Copenhagen Consensus and those guys and what they do. Yeah. So I think there's a good case for coming up with some real metrics for certain kinds of altruism. You know, so if you're saying our, our goal is to increase human health and flourishing and longevity, those are things that can be measured in some ways. And so then you can say, well, it looks like they're really the best bang for your buck is still building water treatment facilities in places in the world sure. where they don't have clean water and putting money into that and malaria, mosquito tents and, and those sorts of things. And, and dare we even say the word vaccinations? Uh, <laughs> but um, and um, so yeah, but there's there's all sorts of altruism, of course, that it's really hard to quantify outcomes. You know, if you look at um, oh, in the city of Philadelphia, where the Catholic uh, diocesan schools there, parish schools there, do so much of the heavy lifting for educating uh, students in Philadelphia who are from you know, typically poor families, uh, typically not Catholic families. Um, you know, they function as a heavily subsidized secondary public school system in many ways. And, um, you know, subsidized by, by churchgoers, of course, not by the, not by the city. And you're not going to be able to measure the outcomes of that very well. Um, you know, you're not going to be able to say, well, this kid got a decent education and therefore his life outcomes look like this instead of that. And here's the Delta and here's the return on our philanthropic investment. Um, but to the extent that there are places where you can do that, I think you should. And that's particularly true in government policy, I think, where, I mean, the, the er case of this is the um, endless debate over Head Start, which, you know, study after study after study has shown doesn't really provide um, much in the way of educational benefit. Um, it does provide a lot of decently paid full-time jobs for people who are Democratic voters and activists and uh, connected to that that world. And... Um, the same goes for a lot of the um, multiplicity of uh, administrative positions in public schools and universities and things like that, where there used to be one dean of students. Now there are 85 different specialized deans of students for different sorts of things. Those probably don't really provide any real educational benefit uh, for the most part and should um, probably be subject to that kind of rigorous um, analysis, particularly we're talking about public money being spent. So when it comes to things like... Um, you know, food stamps, we still call them food stamps, even though they haven't been stamps in, what, 30 years now, 40 years now, something like that. Um, I think that's actually a pretty good program, but it's a program in which there's a good deal of, you know, waste and fraud and a program that probably has some, you know, negative unintended consequences when it comes to work and other sorts of household economic decisions. Um, so the fact that we maybe want to look at it from that point of view doesn't necessarily mean we want to spend less on it. Maybe we want to spend more. It's actually a pretty good program in some ways, and it does essentially the thing that it's meant to do. There aren't people starving to death in the United States. 
And uh, that's um, that's definitely a step in the right direction. That's how we want things, particularly when it comes to children and disabled people and other folks who can't really um, be expected to do things for themselves. But that doesn't mean that even though the outcomes are still good and the um, intentions are certainly excellent in most cases, that these things should be beyond um, analysis. I think the problem you run into with the, uh, you know, sort of Bankman Freeds of the world and these other um, scam artists is that the good feelings associated with philanthropic intent, but also the, the good feelings associated with being part of the, the hot new thing, mm-hmm. um, that I'm not actually a, a, a middle-aged um, multimillionaire looking to uh, get a better return on my investment. I'm part of a new social and technical revolution in how we organize the economy and how we work or how we have, you know, how we handle money and that sort of thing. This can really overwhelm the critical thinking centers in people's brains pretty easily. And so you see people who really know better making really, really bad decisions and doing just no due diligence. The Wall Street Journal actually has a great history of doing this this sort of thing very well. After the financial crisis in 2007, 2008, and the, the mortgage meltdown, they did a wonderful series of reports where they were just going around talking to people who had gotten their houses foreclosed and who got into you know, trouble with their mortgages. And they didn't do any commentary on it. They just mm-hmm. reported left without comment, as they say. And, you know, every story was, well, we're two married school teachers in California and we have a combined household income of $150,000. So we thought it made sense to take out $5 million in mortgages and buy three properties. <laughs> and now we don't understand how, you know, we can't pay. And um, you kind of understand when it's people like that. I remember in the sort of late 80s, early 90s, when the first big kind of derivatives uh, bubble crashed. And there were these guys who were, you know, they were middle-class professionals who had heard from their brother-in-law that they could make an 18% annual return on this investment they didn't understand and put all their money in some god-awful complicated, you know, yen-denominated orange juice, soybean, reverse, future, whatever, and, um, you know, some 5,000 variable derivative. And then they're surprised when the stuff, you know, crashes and and they lose their money. So part of it's, you know, greed, of course, in those cases, well, I'm going to get this thing that no one else has. But also that kind of excitement runs away with people. And um, so I think the desire to be part of a big social change and the desire to do good are good desires. Um, but you have to do your, your underwriting, too, and you have to do your due diligence. And, and the people I don't feel sorry for are these you know, big institutional investors and sovereign wealth funds and stuff who just wrote these guys a check and um, didn't pay any attention to where the money was going. And I don't know what bankruptcy law actually says about this because I'm not an expert in bankruptcy law. Um, but I sure hope they go to the back of the line when it comes to yeah. getting paid because they are buffoons and uh, just deserve it. One of the things about the the um, this particular story is it, it illustrates something that I have noticed for a while, which is the desire to spend the same money twice. And uh, so they had this thing where they were taking, you know, one pile of assets and um, using it as collateral for, you know, three or four different things. So they borrowed money against it to acquire this. And then they used the stuff that they acquired to borrow money against something else. And um, without anyone ever stopping to ask, apparently, hey, isn't this asset already spoken for by some other creditor you you borrowed money against? And uh, again, this sort of stuff is, I mean, you know, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an English major who didn't finish his degree at the University of Texas. Um, but uh, even, even to someone like me, uh, those kinds of questions are pretty obvious. And when they don't get asked, it makes you wonder why these people went to, you know, Harvard Business School, or or didn't go to NYU Business School in the case of a recently elected uh, Republican congressman. 
Yeah, no, we got to get to Mr. Santos in a second, if that is his real name. Uh, <laughs> Which I'm starting to doubt, to be honest. Um, uh, no, but the, I, like, you raise a, you know, I, I agree with all of your points. It just, it, it reminds me of my longstanding gripe against new ideas. Um, I'm not saying that all new ideas are bad. It's just that if you have to bet, most new ideas are going to be bad ideas just because they're new. And, um, um, and there's this sort of mimetic contagion that comes from some new ideas that seem to scratch an itch in people that don't get the due diligence. It's like, it's like they, they make it through the blood brain barrier because it would be really cool if they worked. Um, and, and it would be, I've become a fun example of that. Just jump to my phone. Am I interrupting you? No, go ahead. Um, Go ahead. Particularly new ideas that are only sort of half understood. So mm-hmm. uh, a million years ago, when I worked at the Lubbock Avalanche Journal, and our farm editor was this kind of older guy, he was a very nice guy and really knew farming, but didn't know didn't know a lot of other stuff. And he had encountered somewhere in his education the idea of the economic multiplier effect, mm-hmm. and someone had given him like a formula for how this is 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 arrived at. Which there's no formula for it. You know, it's kind of a judgment thing really yeah yeah, yeah. but he had this number in his head and so we had this story that came across the farm page that i was editing at the time that claimed that you know the the value of the cotton crop in lubbock county was something like 200 billion dollars once you (laughs) once you take account of the economic multiplier effect and i said you know there's 187,000 people in this town i think 200 billion dollars in income we would notice yeah Uh, maybe this needs to get sent back but he was he (laughs) and he showed me and but the thing was he showed me the math and the math was right. I mean, the arithmetic was right. It was just meaningless. Right, <laughs> it right. just didn't didn't tell you the thing that he thought it was going to tell you. But yeah, you were saying new ideas. Yeah, no, like new. I mean, like again, Head Start is. A, I mean, the funny thing about Head Start is it's not a new idea. But no. um, but it. I think we can all agree that if interventions, whether they're state or not, is a different question, right? But interventions in very early education, if they had really just sort of obvious irrefutable returns on the investment, that's an investment worth doing, right? I mean, I don't, like, I, it's, it's amazing how many people think that, like, opposition to Head Start from sort of policy, right-wing policy wonks is an emotional thing, right? It's like, we just don't want to spend money on poor black kids. <laughs> yeah, we hate kids, right? And, it's the worst. Um, but, like... There was this quote, which I tried to track down. I got to the author who wrote this thing for the Claremont Review of Books years ago, and he said he heard it on the radio, and he, can, he couldn't give me the quote. So I've never, I, I, it may be too, it's not too good to check, because I did try to check it. It was just, it can't be confirmed. But apparently Nancy Pelosi in the Obama administration was, uh, in the Obama years, was asked to um, respond to the charge that the Democrats didn't have any new ideas. And she said, I, I, I'll respond to that with three words: Franklin Delano Roosevelt. <laughs> and um, and it's again, it may be apocryphal, but it was so perfect because you know the Democrats have been sort of a cargo cult to New Dealism for a hundred years, and they still think it, they're new ideas, right? And now yeah. we're seeing this sort of uh, and what ha- my problem with it, it's sort of like getting back to the adjective problem of effective altruism or explanatory journalism is there are a lot of people out there who think that if you can just, you know, the spoonful of sugar that makes the medicine go down, if you can just find the right adjective around an old idea to make it sound like a new one, 
you don't have to do your due diligence. And so like all of these sort of common good capitalism people and post-liberal integralism, they throw a lot of new adjectives at some really friggin' old ideas and they think they've come up with something new. And, you know, and real new ideas, particularly in things like politics and political economy, are incredibly rare. Um, you know, this is something, you know, as one of our heroes, you know, Albert J. Nock would write about is like a lot of the economic ideas that people thought in the 1930s were new date back to like the fourth century in Imperial China. Um, anyway, enough of it. Yeah, no, I think there's, um, it's certainly true in politics, the, um, the confusion of innovation in nomenclature with innovation in, in analysis. And, uh, this is something that kind of holds true all over the place though. I mean, one of my kind of pet peeves in life, uh, <laughs> All the way back to the first issue of National Review, uh, which contains that essay, they'll never get me on that couch, you know, an anti-psychotherapy essay. <laughs> and um, I'm kind of anti-psychotherapy myself in some ways. And, um, you know, we have this, just this your Scientology speaking. Like, right. Yeah. Like <laughs> narcissism is a good example of this. Right. So narcissism isn't really a thing. You know, it's, it's a literary conceit. It's a way of describing, uh, you know, a, a bundle of behaviors that sometimes go together. But it's not a particular disease of the mind in the way that schizophrenia is or bipolar disorder is or something like that. Um, but because we gave it a name and, uh, you know, sort of a conceptual um, set of boundaries, it becomes this thing that takes on a life of its own. And um, kind of like the weird pop cultural fascination with uh, sociopaths and psychopaths. Um, you know, you see these dumb quizzes on the Internet. Which one are you? Are you more of a sociopath, <laughs> more of a psychopath? And uh, no, I don't know. I mean, it's it, what kind of person do I have to eat? Joni, you're doing something confusing over there. I'm just letting everyone know who can't see the video. There's this wonderful light coming behind you. You're looking like a, a sort of an angelic vision there. That's uh, Yeah, no, I'm sorry. It's very distracting. And it's, um, it's a halo. I, I it's, dig it. No, that's good for you. It's half biblical, half J.J. Um, Abrams <laughs> lens, lens flare. But Good. Yeah. Good J.J. Abrams call out there. Yeah, so I think that in, you know, in politics, we certainly do that, too, where... Um, I mean, we've all had this conversation with these guys a million times, which is, what do you want, what do you want to do? You know, what do you right. want the government to do differently from what it's doing? What do you want? And um, you never really get much of an answer about it. Um, and the answers you do get largely have to do with status and relative positions of prestige. You know, I don't think we should valorize businessmen and CEOs and captains of industry and billionaires as, as much as we do, um, someone will say. Well, that's, that's fine, but what does that really mean for politics? Right. What does that really mean for, for policy? And um, I mean, a lot of the kind of Russia-Ukraine stuff is this way, too, where um, there are people who just can't uh, bear anything that, uh, that reflects well on the Ukrainians and reflects poorly on uh, Vladimir Putin. And even, even including people who are sort of notionally you know, Putin critics who are you know, at least um, at some verbal level honest about the character of his administration, what sort of person he is. Um, there's this kind of weird, you know, status competition there that um, people feel the need to um, launder all of their experiences through. <laughs> I'm sorry to laugh out loud. People can't see uh, Jonah trying to block the, uh, the the halo with his beanie now. So I was I was hoping that econ talk beanie would actually be good for something, and now we've, <laughs> we've learned. What it is, as long as you don't move for the rest of the uh, podcast, my wife will be so proud. Just fine, yeah. Um, I, I apologize to listeners for um, um, my distracting silliness. Um, 
right. So again, you write more about tax stuff and economic stuff than I do. Um, I have generally been, as I believe you have been, um, as a all things being equal, um, the private sector uses its money better than the public sector does, and that um, people who get very upset about rich people benefiting from various tax breaks, um, uh, the assumption being that the government would know how to spend rich people's money better than rich people do. And so in theory, I am generally very in favor of that uh, point of view. Or I, that's where I side all things being equal. I have to say it does rankle a good deal that Donald Trump has paid <laughs> On an annual basis, he pays in a year in taxes, what in income taxes at least. Um, uh, what I, I probably pay averaged out to almost a day, you know, in income taxes. And, um, and there does seem. Well, your your again, books sell better than mine do, John. Um, I, there's a. Uh, I mean, someone check my math on that. Maybe I'm off by an order of magnitude, but still, I pay a lot more in income taxes than Donald Trump does. And, um, if I were concerned about the integrity of the tax system, this would be troubling, right? You know, I mean, if, if, yeah. I mean, if, 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 if there, something is wrong when Donald Trump, um, because it, like when Warren Buffett has an effectively very small income tax rate, it doesn't really bother me very much because I think Warren Buffett's investments are, have a better return for the economy than what the federal government could do if we had some sort of con- confiscatory wealth tax, you know, like mm-hmm. keeping, keeping trains globally competitive and all that, that's good. But um, there's very little evidence that, that, that Trump is like a positive, major positive contribution to the <laughs> Or the even a positive G- contribution in any way. <laughs> Uh, I would have a hard time buying it. Yeah. Am, am I just suffering from the, you know, the, the sort of economics version of Trump law where I'm bending the rules because I'm offended by his behavior personally? Maybe. Um, we have a stupid tax code. One thing about our tax code is that um, if you're in Congress, you shouldn't be allowed to complain about the tax code if you haven't done something to actually try to, to change it. Agreed. Um, and I hate hearing about, you know, special carve outs and subsidies to the tax code from the people who created them. Yeah. You know, go back and watch State of the Union addresses. Both parties for the last gazillion years, back to the Civil War, back to at least to the New Deal. And in every State of the Union address, the president will propose some kind of tax incentive, usually for manufacturing or something like that, some uh, some area of the economy that they need stimulation and that has some particular political valence. And then so we create these manufacturing tax credits. And then 10 years later, we complain when manufacturers take advantage of manufacturing tax credits. Right. And I mean, the, the sort of textbook example of this is Starbucks. So they created a manufacturing tax credit back in the day. Well, who do you decide who's a manufacturer? And um, that's actually a pretty complicated question. And so one of the things they decided was that people who do food packaging and food processing and preparation, but not for sale to consumers uh, at the end of the day are, are manufacturers. And uh, so Starbucks has this giant operation where it's processing food and coffee and stuff for its own store uses. And so to the extent that Starbucks is engaged in things that met the legal definition of being a manufacturer, they were eligible for these tax credits. And then people made a big stink about the fact that Starbucks was taking advantage of these tax credits. 
And the people who were making the biggest thing about it were the people who created and voted for and bragged about the very program they were doing because everyone thinks it's just going to be steel mills, you know, right. or car factories or something like that. Um, some kind of real good, you know, photo op, uh, politically um, juicy type of business when it's, it, it's almost never going to be that way. So I think that in general, the fact that we allow people to carry forward losses um, against future income and profits is is a good thing. It's a good aspect of our tax code, um, even if it sometimes means someone's like Donald Trump, um, you know, gets to pretend like he doesn't have any income for tax purposes, even while he's you know flying around in a private jet and that sort of thing. So, the Trump situation, which I, I suppose a lot of people know about, but I'll just real quickly revisit it. Um, he has a lot of uh, losses to carry forward because. There was a year in his life when he lost like a billion dollars mm-hmm. and he actually, as far as the tax code goes, lost more money than any other American ever had. Up until that <laughs> so he's always talking in superlatives, you know, the biggest, the best, the greatest and, and all that. And uh, he was the, the literal biggest loser uh, when it comes to um, income for one particular year. And that provided him with a lot of losses to carry forward against future income. So I suspect, I mean, my understanding is that mainly what's at play here. I mean, of course, you can do all sorts of shenanigans if you if you have a very high personal income and you have a lot of business entities associated with what you do, then you can move stuff around from one to the other. Like, I don't know if Donald Trump personally owns his airplane. I sort of doubt that he does. It's probably yeah. Trump Enterprises or the Trump Organization or some other some other group actually owns that. And uh, there are people with you know, greater and less, lesser levels of income who do that. You know, my parents had a uh, had a rent house they owned, which somehow managed to never make a profit over, <laughs> you know, 30 years. When really, we spent $20,000 painting this place this year because it didn't get painted. I'm pretty sure it didn't. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, that sort of thing. You know, everyone cheats on their taxes. That doesn't mean it's okay. It means we have a bad tax code. Um, you know, I don't think that going and busting waitresses who don't report their cash tips uh, down to the last penny should probably be our top tax priority. But also, we shouldn't have a tax code that encourages and rewards petty corruption um, among you know low income people or high income people or or anybody else. Um, simplifying the tax code is one of the things that conservatives and libertarians talk about a lot, and it makes liberals kind of roll their eyes. And we have a complicated tax code for a reason. I understand that um, it's never going to be as simple as we would like it to be. I don't think um, even if I got to you know write my Kevin Williamson dream tax code into uh, law, it would still be more complicated than just saying, well, everybody pays 10%, and that's that. Um, what would it look like? Get pretty close to that. Well, I mean, if this were you know year zero French Revolution type thinking, mm-hmm. um, I probably wouldn't tax income at all. Right. Um, I would probably have a consumption-oriented tax um, for various reasons. You know, I think a, a VAT is a pretty decent model in a lot of ways. Um, but we're not starting from scratch, you know, we're starting from a country that has a long history and tradition of organizing its taxes through income on individuals and businesses. And it probably would be politically and maybe even economically, um, something close to impossible to, um, really overhaul that without really overhauling basically everything else in at least the federal government and, uh, and some other aspects of American life. Um, uh, but yeah, I think consumption taxes would be, uh, better, um, we have a tax code that exempts uh, too many people from paying you know, certain kinds of taxes. and um, But also at the same time, it, it punishes people in ways they don't see. Like Poor people pay a lot of taxes. Um, they just don't pay them 
out of they don't pay a lot of federal income tax, so they right. don't get a form at the end of the year. You know, they pay it in the form of higher prices for things. They pay it in the form of lower wages for things. I mean, as it, this has been studied a lot, and for um, particularly lower income workers, the employer share, quote unquote, of the payroll tax really just gets passed along in the, in the form of lower wages. That doesn't happen for very, very high income workers because they're so in demand that, you know, you can't really um, push them around that way the way you can um, workers with with less marketable skills. So, um, you know, I'd like to have a tax code that has less of that sort of thing in it. Um, I mean, the VAT actually, in a way, does the same thing in the sense that it spreads the um, burden around through higher prices and, and other sorts of things, but it does it in a kind of consistent and at least i suppose more straightforward in some ways more transparent way um and also taxes different activity which is you know taxing heart you know work and productivity is dumb taxing consumption there's a certain amount of equitable you know you 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 exempt certain basic necessities up to whatever i mean that's why it starts to get complicated kind of quickly but i i, I well the value yeah, you and i are, are enough to remember like the great example of the yacht tax yeah uh, it was back in the 80s 90s and um where well, it was going to be a tax on your rich people people who buy yachts and um but of course it ended up just crushing the boat building industry in new england right. and on the east coast of the united states and hurting a lot of you know working class people and small business entrepreneurs and things like that whereas the guys who buy yachts just bought their yachts somewhere else right and uh that was not not such a big deal um you know, trying to do too much. Okay, here, here, here's the thing about the tax code, which is that our whole thing about taxes should be that the tax code should be designed to generate revenue in a way that is economically doing as little damage as possible with as little distortion in terms of behavior. It shouldn't be about encouraging this or that business or social justice or leveling incomes. There may be, there's, there's all sorts of arguments for, for having policies to do those things. You shouldn't do it through the tax code. The tax code should just be a way to raise the revenue that the government needs. I really dislike the um, the last 20 years of, well, the best thing we can do as conservatives is cripple the IRS mm-hmm. and make sure that it doesn't get, you know, adequately funded and that it can't hire people and, and that sort of thing. And then when, you know, Biden proposes to hire, what was it, 22,000 IRS agents or something like that, you know, we, we, we treat it like it's, um, you know, um, invasion. And um, I'm enough of an old-fashioned conservative, I guess, that I want to have a tax agency that functions properly, that's able to do its job. Um, and if, if you wanted to do a different job, give it a different job. If you don't like what it does, change the rules. Um, you know, this sort of backdoor way of trying to get the um, kind of Rothbardian anarcho-capitalist tax outcome you want by simply crippling the, the federal government ability to do the job we've legally tasked it with doing, I think is just really irresponsible and um, something that I would like to see changed. Yeah, I mean, that's my view about so many of these abolish this or abolish that things, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, defund the police or abolish the FBI or abolish the IRS. Like, unless you actually mean getting rid of that government function, shut up. You know, right. I mean, you know, it's like if you're actually saying that the federal government should no longer investigate federal crimes and we should move all the federal crimes except the three that are listed in the Constitution onto state governments. I'm with you. Let's have that conversation. That's a fun, crazy, but fun conversation. But if you're just saying abolish the FBI, but of course we're going to still have the federal government investigate espionage and bank robbery and kidnapping and blah, 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 blah. All you're really doing is saying 
again, it's back to this adjective nonsense. Though. If we just change the name well, of these things, maybe, you know. In some cases, maybe it would be better to have a different agency. You sure. know, I mean, there are times when you get these sort of, you know, corporate culture issues and agencies where they're just so, you know, so irredeemable that it's best just to, you know, take the red marker out and uh, draw a line through it and start from scratch. But, you know, you hear like people say, well, we should abolish the Department of Energy. Well, okay, the DOE does a lot of stuff people don't like and the sort of, you know, green energy subsidies and that kind of stuff. It also maintains our nuclear arsenal and provides right. security for it. We're not going to stop doing that. Right. Um, or even hated agencies like, you know, the EPA. Um, I'm the most pro-energy guy you'll probably meet. Um, I, um, I'm a big fan of the American energy industry. It's going to be regulated by somebody. And those regulations are going to include environmental standards. And those inv- regulations should include <laughs> environmental standards. It's right. not something you can just pretend um, that it isn't an issue. So, yeah, if it's not the EPA, well, fine. Uh, someone else can do it, but it's going to get done somewhere. A lot of this stuff can get done at the state level, like, you know, in um, Pennsylvania, their Department of Environmental Protection is probably, in most people's estimate, a much more intelligent and mm. effective regulator than the EPA is. And people would rather work with with agencies like that. But no, it's a it's a it's boob bait stuff, you know. And of course it's worse when you're Rick Perry and you can't remember what agencies you want to abolish. <laughs> <laughs> um I should just say for those who think I I gave up the ghost um, by admitting that I was suffering from effectively Trump derangement syndrome when it comes to the tax code. Um, I'm still nonetheless against Trump's tax returns being spilled out into public view. Um, I don't know. I I have no problem with the committee looking at them. I have no problem with the committee. um, um, With the claim that the committee has the power to do it because it does have the power to do it. Um, uh, I should say I have no problem with it. It makes me a little uncomfortable, but it's 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 a legitimate exercise of congressional authority. I do not understand why it's a good thing to spill out his tax returns for public display. And this has nothing to do with sympathy for Trump, but it just, I kind of like having a dogmatic opposition to punitively releasing people's tax returns, even though I think he in, invited a lot of these problems, we still shouldn't do it. Yeah, it's one thing for your you know, personal finances to become public if you're like involved in a tax case yeah. or a bankruptcy case or something like that. But now just as a, as a kind of form of social sanction to try to you know, hurt or embarrass someone. Well, first of all, it's dumb because you can't embarrass Donald Trump. Right. It's just not, not a doable thing. Um, but secondly, yeah, that's and it creates more of the same kind of energy that we were talking about earlier where people will say, well, let's just not fund the IRS. You know, let's not let's not do anything we can to cooperate with these agencies. Let's try to cripple them. Uh, because, you know, we don't trust them. And now we also have some reason to perceive them as enemies. You know, if you think about the IRS's obviously vindictive leaking when it came to the National Organization for Marriage, some of those other groups, and some of the things the IRS has done in terms of, uh, you know, just vindictive political shenanigans, um, people are right not to trust the IRS. That's, you know, it's part of the problem that, um, you know, we're always talking about how important it is to have trust in institutions because that, is how democratic societies flourish and you have, you know, cooperation at a relatively low level of friction and low, relatively low level of kind of transaction costs. Um, but it won't do to be lecturing people about trust when they have good reason not to trust some of these right. institutions. Um, you know, the case for reforming the IRS isn't that, you know, we pay too much in taxes because we have pretty normal 
kind of average uh, tax burden compared to other similar countries uh, and compared to our own our own history. Um, the argument is that we actually need a functional tax agency if we're going to collect federal taxes, which we're, we're going to do. And we need one that people can have some faith in, that it's a real, um, honest, trustworthy, neutral um, operator. And there's no reason to believe that about the IRS right now. I think that's, you know, the, the FBI has done itself a real disservice by giving people um, good reason not to trust in its you know, political neutrality, I think. These institutions are their wor- own worst enemies. And even though some of the critics of these institutions are dishonest and opportunistic in those sorts of things, they aren't really the problem. The problem is that these institutions giving those critics so much free ammunition. Yeah. So let's, 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 let's turn to um, someone who's giving everybody a lot of free ammunition. Uh, uh, <laughs> Congressman elect Joe Santos. Um, yeah. uh, this is such an inspiring story. I mean, this it's is a really fantastic good. story. Yeah. Well, it is. Um, you know, 50 years ago, if you were in public life and lying about your Jewish background, it was because, you know, you were trying to cover it up because there was so much anti-Semitism. True. And now, you know, he's, he's doing it because he thinks it's, uh, it's, uh, it's an election winner. And Long Island, well, that's, progress, be, right? <laughs> that's progress, Jonah. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, think about um, it. The, the very people who used to be the bitterest anti-Semites in the United States, uh, you know, kind of right-wing conservative Christians are probably now the most, you know, pro-Jewish and certainly pro-Israel. Uh, oh, for sure. Yeah. Political faction in the United States. That's, that's a good thing. I agree. I agree. Um, philosemitism. I mean, like it's, it, I used to make this point all the time. It was like, I would go get, go speak at back when I was on the, I was popular on the conservative speaking circuit. I would go and speak at some group that would have a prayer beforehand. And I have zero problem with having prayer, zero problem with having Christian prayer, right? Like tolerance is a two way street. It's totally fine by me. Um, uh, they are paying me to come speak. So like, again, let's get the city Jew to come in here and speak is not anti-Semitic, <laughs> right? And, but there's a tonal issue where, which I always thought was more funny than anything else. I never took offense to it, but of, of you know, and let us thank our Lord Jesus Christ for bringing Jonah Goldberg here today. That um, is just kind of a little strange. And I remember talking to Ramesh about this, about, Did he give you a ride? Was he your Uber driver? <laughs> no, just like, you know, the, the GOP's old problems of sort of trying to figure out how to broaden out the tent had a lot to do with these sort of tonal sort of uh, symbolic things. And Ramesh always used to use the point about how, you know, say you're a, a Indian American who uh, just to traffic in gross stereotypes owns a chain of motels, Right. And you, you are uh, very much interested in the sort of low tax, low regulation, pro-growth agenda of the GOP. And you go to um, the, you know, the doubt, whatever the county in Dallas is chapter of the GOP meeting at some country club. And the first words that they say at the beginning of the meeting is they all join hands and give thanks to our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not like they're bigoted against the Indian guy, but sort of tonally, culturally, you could see why the Indian guy would be like, you know, this just isn't the club for me. Um, and I think that there's a lot of that kind of thing that uh, I don't know how we got onto this, but like um, that, that, the, that culturally um, people don't 
get when they're trying to broaden out. Again, I, I can't. Now I'm really kind of flummoxed as how we got onto this. But um, let's go back to anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism. Yeah. So I don't think there's a huge anti-Semitism a problem on on the right these days. Um, but there is a problem of of figuring out how to talk about the Jews um, in ways that don't freak out some of my 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 Jewish friends and Jewish friends. Oh yeah, that was, that was Santos's thing. I was um, yeah. Who was the original comedian who said that? I'm, I'm not a Jew, just Jewish, not the whole hog. That was Benny. Uh, no, not Benny. It was uh, oh, the guy who got in trouble for obscenity. Um, 60s guy. Oh, oh, Lenny Bruce. Uh, yeah, yeah, Lenny Bruce. I think it was originally yeah. a Lenny Bruce joke. Um, Pod says it about me all the time because in Pod's world, I'm not a Jew. So um, you know, take it as either. Jonah's not Jewish. He's Jewish. I didn't know your, your mother well, but when I hear the name Goldberg, uh, Luciana is not the sort of person who leaps to mind. No, that's right. My, my mom, <laughs> mom was Episcopalian, but like the deal was that the deal with my dad was really racist Jewish. It was bar mitzvah. I went to road of Sholem day school. Um, so culturally Jewish, I'm very comfortable with, but I've always been honest about all that. I, I recall an, an, an early description you, you offered to yourself of upper West side Demi Jew. That's right. Pseudo-intellectual demi-Jew from the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Um, so uh, on the Santos thing, I, I, I take your point about, about wanting to be Jewish. I also think it's very interesting that he's seems like the only honest thing that for sure he has said is that he's gay. Because um, that would be really weird to lie about. Apparently came too. as news to his ex-wife, though. Maybe, maybe. Um, maybe he's gay-ish. Um, and, uh, <laughs> but, uh, uh, I just have difficulty getting, like, I think a guy should be pelted from the public stage. Um, sure. and there is a difference in degree from a difference in kind, but, uh, like I saw the other day, Jason Miller, you know, the grotesque, the gargoyle who works for, for Trump, who, um, at least allegedly slipped an abortion pill to his then mistress, uh, talking about how Santos was beyond the pale and should be, you know, shunned or whatever. And I was like, really? <laughs> After moving those goalposts so far, moving them back is you know, it's a funny, funny exercise. You know, Marjorie Taylor Greene of all people who came out and said, well, you know, I'm glad he's, he's being honest with his constituents now. And, you know, when you're getting dinged on your honesty by Marjorie Taylor Greene, I mean, you can think about her career. You know, she's a QAnon kook who became a professional QAnon kook. So she went from being a hobby liar to a right. pro liar <laughs> and then being into uh, Congress. And even she thinks this guy's a bit much. It's only what people, of course, choose to uh, to lie about. Um, and this guy apparently has been doing this his whole life. Like, so in, yeah. in the Times reporting, they were talking about people who knew him when he was you know, uh, a younger person living in a you know, pretty modest apartment. And his mother, I guess, was a house cleaner. But still claiming that they had a home in Nantucket and you know things like that. Um, so this seems to be a, a real kind of uh, a lifelong habit uh, for this guy. And uh, you kind of known a few people like that uh, over the years. Um, most of them don't go into politics. Some of them go into journalism, unfortunately, which is a real bad yeah. place for for uh, kind of habitual liars. Yeah, but it's 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 always nice to have a story with some mirth in it toward the end of the year. And the Sanchez story is funny. Do you think the Republicans should do something corporately to to try to sanction him, to refuse to give him committee assignments, or or something like that? Really, not, I mean, honestly, I, I'd be open to it because I think it would be a sign of healing on the GOP. 
But on the merits, not. I mean, yes, on the merit, like uh, on Earth Two, we you know we're in the second term of of Mitch Daniels' administration. Yeah, they should throw the guy out and all that kind of stuff. You and I have a mutual friend, by the way, who says Mitch Daniels is really going to run. Really? Yes. We will we will discuss that off air. Um, assuming that you can't name the mutual friend, otherwise we would discuss on air. Um, but uh, um, that would make me very excited. I mean. I'd be very excited if I thought he could win, uh, but um, uh, which I'm not saying he can't. I just we got to. I'd, I'd come out of retirement and vote. For, <laughs> um, but I don't know. I mean, it's like uh, I'm just uh, like first of all, Kevin McCarthy can't because this guy's going to vote for him, and it's a swing district that Republicans would probably lose if they reran. Um, so I just don't think it's going to happen. And I'm sort you know one of the things that I. One of the most underappreciated things about Madisonian democracy is that there's always another friggin' election, right? And, you know, that's how it's supposed to work. I mean, shame on the Republican Party for not vetting this guy. Shame on the Democratic opposition <laughs> researchers for completely missing this. Shame on the New York press. I mean, my God. Um, I mean, like, the, the, it's, it's, it's across the board a sign of just real failure, um, I mean, who is doing the opposition research on this? Because, you know, college and ex-employers is where you find the dirt. I mean, those right. are the first phone calls you make. I, mean, I Sarah would probably be a more apt person to talk about this because that's kind of her world more than it is ours. But if I were looking to, uh, to you know, host somebody, that's, that's who I'd start calling. Especially someone this guy's age because you get san- sanctions for so many things in college, you know. Exactly, yeah. And also, like... I, I generally hate when I hear journalists, mainstream journalists say, you know, we were trained that, you know, the rule is if your mother tells you she loves you, check it out. Right. And that's the old, you know, like, and, and they don't, they don't have that kind of skepticism, but the things that they want to be true and all that kind of stuff. But like when a guy says he worked at Goldman Sachs, check it out. I mean, like, like, I mean, I just like, they're like such low hanging fruit in this story. You know, the guy says he went to this college check it out, you know, like forget finding out whether or not he date raped somebody, finding out whether he attended the school and actually graduated seems like a good first step. I mean, the golden thing I kind of get, because I mean, who would make that up? (laughs) (laughs) Who would claim to be a Goldman Sachs guy if you weren't actually a Goldman Sachs guy? But um, yeah, the other stuff though, you know, kind of, kind of, kind of weird. You know, you had a guest on your show the other day, um, Jessica something or other, I can't remember. Yeah. And uh, she used she used the word reckoning to uh-huh. describe what the Republican Party needs to do for itself, and I kind of I like that word because I think that is exactly what is uh, called for. I'm talking about Jonah's wife, by the way, for those of you who missed the uh, the episode. I think about that story of George W. Bush, you know, just waking up with a terrible hangover one day and thinking, like, well, okay, this is this is it. This is the moment where I have to have to change things. And you know, people and in institutions sometimes go through that, and the Republican Party really needs to. Um, you know, you, you wake up in the morning in bed and you roll over and, you know, you, and you see Santos or Marjorie Taylor Greene or <laughs> Matt Gates or whoever it is. And you have to say to yourself, what have I become? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, what, what are we, you know, institutionally? And there's a time when, you know, you really have to start changing things. And one of the things that the Republican Party really needs to um, get right with is the issue of, of honesty. Um, you know, these virtues we talk about are not just things that are nice to have or that have some sort of metaphysical value. These are really useful, practical things without which democracies really cannot function. 
um, if you don't have, you know, some essential expectation of truthfulness among people who are elected uh, officials, you're not going to really be able to have a functioning self-governing country for very long. Um, you know, if you look at, um, you know, Boris in the in the UK, what really undid him with his fellow Tories um, was his dishonesty. It wasn't you know, his personal shenanigans or um, the fact that he sometimes behaved in a way that maybe you wish a prime minister wouldn't. Is that they couldn't count on him to tell them the truth about things. Right. When they figured out that he was going to lie to them as readily as he lied to anybody else, then it was time for him to go, and they and they got rid of it. And the Republican Party, this is again, it's not a Trump-specific thing. It predates him. It sort of enabled him in some ways, but has really embraced you know this idea of strategic dishonesty, uh, you know, lying as a kind of virtue, lying for justice. I think you wrote an essay with the headline "Lying for Justice" one time, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. You know, at, at some level, they're just going to have to say that you know this kind of trollishness and owning the lib stuff and and all that is is not justification for this the fact that you know the mainstream media has a pro-democratic and anti-republican bias is not justification for just lying about things and for tolerant tolerating lies and countenancing them in some cases even celebrating them i mean i remember in the 90s one of the things that really um disgusted me about about clinton and the people around him was how much they obviously enjoyed him being a liar mm-hmm. um it wasn't that just that he lied to them that he was good at it you know they mm-hmm. they embraced that kind of slick willy thing and um the fact that he was a skillful and clever liar and um this kind of you know clever politician appeals to people who um put too much value on on cleverness i think they just kind of welcomed it and i hate to see the republican party having gone the same way but it's been that way i think for um for some time and it's a difficult habit to to break and to get yourself out of. I'll probably be struck down by a Jewish space laser. <laughs> um, um, I'll put in a good word. Truth is telling the truth is always its own defense. Doesn't mean you always have to tell the whole truth, right? In interpersonal things, but um, you're always. If someone said, "Why did you say that?" Well, it's the truth. Is always a defense. Um, um, and I think that the, 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 so I have, I'll, let me throw it, let me throw it at you this way. I've, I've tried to articulate this idea in the past and it just doesn't quite work. I think that universities in particular are large, are, have a huge amount of blame for this and it starts on the left. Um, but we have a lot of smart people that are funneled into disciplines that aren't about, you know, it's sort of the Peter Thiel thing. We got 140 characters, but didn't get jetpacks kind of thing. And uh, we funnel a lot of our best and brightest into professions, into majors, into uh, mindsets that that say you can become successful, you can yield you can get the results that you want simply by manipulating words and maybe images and and so there's an enormous number of people out there you know uh, and you can go back it's an interesting intellectual history you can go through george lakoff all the way back to the pragmatists and whatever but um they're just enormous it's now a bipartisan phenomenon where there are people who think that if you um that all you need to do is change the words and you'll change reality. 
and that the words are um, the only thing that really matter. And you find this, you know, Donald Trump is sort of a proly version of the sort of postmodern English department concept about this, right? He, he's saying, what do I have to do to put you in this condo today? But he's still, you know, of course, they, you know, of course there are wood floors under that carpeting, but let's just sell the condo now. Um, and, um, and the left is, you know, has been hung up on this sort of George Lakoff, uh, you know, Foucault, I mean, go back as far as you like, like you can change people's sex just by what words you use to describe them and all that. And the, there's an abracadabra power to words that does not exist. And, and look, you and I are probably in the 0.001% of Americans who love words. Um, but words, you know, it's sort of like, you know, is a fork better than a spoon? Well, it depends what you're going to use it for. If, you know, spoon's better for soup. Um, words are great for what they're great at, but they're not great at everything. And I think that like a huge amount of our problems on the left and the right today boil down to this idea of essentially using words as magic to gaslight and, and shoehorn reality. Yeah. I have this whole like third of a book written about magic and, uh, <laughs> it's, it's role in our politics. Uh, true. Uh, I'm going to come out with that eventually. Yeah, I think that um, a lot of this has to do with the um, predominance of lawyers in politics, because there's like playing with playing with words in the way a writer does and playing with words in the way a lawyer does. Very different kind of right. playing with words. And um, the playing with words uh, that a lawyer does is more characteristic of our politics. You know, um, whatever Bernie Sanders is, is going to do with words, it's not going to delight, surprise, <laughs> <laughs> amuse and entertain. Um, like what maybe I do on a good day or at least try to do on a good day. Um, so you know, Lake or not Lake <laughs> Santos rather. That was a funny slip. Um, is a is a good example of this where people were asking him about his, you know, BS claims about his life and his reply is, Well, I didn't break the law. Mm -hmm. you, you can't say I'm a fraud because I haven't done anything that meets the legal definition of fraud, uh, that sort of thing. And yeah, I guess the the word fraud is kind of kind of funny that way, the way it gets used in in both the technical and non-technical sense. Um but, you know, the issue isn't whether he did something that is legally actionable in a federal fraud case. The only right. issue is whether he's a terrible, terrible uh, habitual liar who shouldn't be trusted with power or office or influence. And he should probably be drummed out of there. And um, so this, you know, this kind of uh, vocabulary of technicalities is, is a big thing. And um, it's kind of, you know, increasingly, well, again, you know, Clinton was the, the master of this and depends on, you know, what he is, is, and, uh, and, and all that stuff of, uh, you know, ever finer parsing of things that don't actually need to be parsed because right. you're talking about it. And it's a way of changing the subject, you know? So if you're, if you're Santos, yeah, you obviously want to change the subject to, um, well, have I done anything that's illegal? Because probably not. Um, well, maybe there's, you might actually have crossed some legal lines somewhere. But um, not in a way he's likely to actually get in any sort of legal trouble for. Um, yeah, probably it's a way of changing the subject, I guess. But also it's that kind of lawyerly sense of, um, or is it, it's it's the argument from "thank you for smoking," right? That if mm. um, if you can if you can win the argument, then you're never really wrong, right? Uh, as long as you won the argument, and uh, of course in that in that story that's illustrated in a kind of you know wonderfully satirical way, but. Um, that is how our, our politics functions now. In fact, um, I kind of wish Christopher Buckley would write more because our current political moment 
is so much better suited for satire than it is for journalism. (laughs) (laughs) It's uh, there's only so much we can do. Yeah. The best example of what you're talking about, and it's it's funny, I keep meaning to use, you know, there's that, the Tocqueville quote about how everything ends up to the courts and everyone always remembers that part. But then part of his point, if I remember it correctly, is that eventually, basically the legalese that defines the courts spills out into society and everybody acts like a magistrate. Right. And I think one of the best examples of that was is impeachment, right? Where the television networks, all of them, CNN, where I'm a contributor, Fox, where I was a contributor, MSNBC, um, whatever, ABC, NBC, CBS, all of them, including New York and all the newspapers too. They do an incredible disservice to the country during the impeachment stuff, both with Clinton and with Trump, by bringing in criminal defense lawyers who go back and forth across this line saying, this is not a criminal trial, but they don't have sufficient evidence, blah, blah, you know, and they make it sound like it's a trial um, before a criminal judge when it's not. And I thought it was really funny the other day, Trump um, was claiming that, that I think it was the special prosecutor or, oh no, it was the January 6th criminal referrals was double jeopardy because he'd already been exonerated (laughs) (laughs) in the impeachment trial. And like the, the question is the way people should look at impeachment trials is, is like, like if you're a member of the Knights, if you're on the board of the Knights of Columbus and the, the president of the Knights of Columbus is behaving in a way that reflects poorly on the Knights of Columbus, um, you, you'd still have a trial of sorts, but it wouldn't be a criminal trial. It would be like, let's hear both sides, blah, 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 blah. Let, you know, everyone gets to defend themselves and then we'll make a decision about what's best for the institution. And that is not what journal, how journalists cover impeachment. They cover it as if it's this criminal enterprise and it's, it's a real disservice because it completely erases any conception of statesmanship and propriety from discourse about, you know, the role of a president. Yeah. And it's particularly destructive in the case of impeachments where you kind of know how the vote's going to turn out anyway. Yeah. Because I mean, let's face it, we're talking about Republicans here. They're not going to, um, they're not going to suddenly be, uh, captured by moral urgency and do the right thing. They're going to, uh, do whatever they think talk radio and, uh, Fox news wants them to do. And then you can say you're exonerated, which of course you haven't been, you just weren't you know, convicted. And that's an interesting part of our, you know, we have, we have a pretty good criminal justice system in a lot of ways, I think, um, in the sense that, you know, we have rules of evidence and legal procedure and that sort of thing. And it really does do a pretty good job of convict, of protecting the rights of the uh, accused. It certainly um, results in a lot more guilty people um, getting off than innocent people being convicted, which is how you want it, of course. But um, it also gives a lot of people a chance to say, well, I was exonerated. Well, that doesn't mean you didn't do it. No, they say they were acquitted, right? Exonerated is, people think acquitted means it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, Yeah, they they found I didn't do anything wrong. Um, I'm not sure that's true. (laughs) Um, You know, I've I've been a misdemeanor criminal defendant. Um, The fact that you were not convicted does not mean you didn't do it. (laughs) Tell me uh, more. (laughs) Old news and embarrassing. um, And um, anywho, uh, maybe I'll write about that one of these days. Um, I, we're, we're, we're coming up on time here. Um, but, um, 
you have a big piece, which I will confess I hadn't gotten to yet. Um, it just came up this morning and we're recording it, recording this this morning, but you have your, um, big gun explainer. Yeah. Hopefully that's going to be, um, a kind of frequently revisited thing. So as gun stories come up, I'll expand it and add new entries and stuff to it. Kind of all the stuff that people need to know when they're talking about the gun policy debate that people tend to get wrong. So what would you say is the, the top thing that people always get wrong about all of this? The AR-15s are a particularly powerful rifle. Yeah. Um, so it's always described as a high-powered rifle, and um, it's not. It's actually pretty low on the uh, on the spectrum. Um, you know, so people who don't shoot don't really know this stuff. That doesn't make it less likely to kill you. You know, a twenty-two is not a very powerful firearm, but it's probably killed more people than any other mm-hmm. uh, cartridge in, in human history. Um, that ends up being sort of an issue though, because people say, well, we don't want to take away your hunting rifles. We just want to take away these dangerous high powered rifles. Well, the truth is your typical hunting rifle is a lot more powerful, uh, than an AR-15 is. Also the, the prominence of such weapons in crimes, including mass shootings is wildly, wildly overstated. Um, so if you look at all the murders in the United States together, all long guns, meaning all rifles and shotguns put together. Um, usually in most years comes out around two or 3% of the, of the homicides. So it's pretty low. They don't break out so-called, you know, assault weapons, um, as a category, but even you assume maybe half of the, uh, rifles out there and probably more than that meet that definition. So you're talking about kind of a 1% thing, which is a lot less than people who die from getting beat to death with, you know, hands and feet and that sort of thing. Um, throughout American history, typically the most common weapon used in a crime, particularly homicide, is whatever the most common handgun happens to be at the time. And that's still true today. So, you know, once upon a time, it was, you know, Mickey Spillane characters with their 38 snub noses under their trench coats. And now it's you know, typically nine millimeter automatics. Um, a big piece of the debate that I'm trying to get people to understand um, through answering these questions is that our gun issues and our, our crime issues are largely not related to characteristics of the firearms themselves. Um, we've had AR-15 type rifles and actual AR-15s in civilian hands since the 1960s. Uh, people have been hunting with them and doing other things like that. That's another thing. No one, no one uses an AR-15 to hunt. It's probably the most common hunting rifle in America, uh, particularly for people who do hog hunting and that sort of thing, which is uh, really popular. So. Um, you know, the kinds of weapons we have been around for a long time. You know, the, the Colt 1911 famously was introduced in 1911, and it's been on the market for, for well over a century now at this point. So there have been semi-automatic handguns around for a long time, um, semi-automatic rifles around for a little less long, but, uh, but pretty close to the same amount of time. And we haven't always had the sort of problems with them that we have now. And if we had... Um, a body of regulation that made it more difficult to acquire this or that kind of gun, it probably wouldn't have much effect on our homicides and and violent crimes um, because people were perfectly capable of murdering one another with shotguns and revolvers and and, and other sorts of things. Short of adopting something that would be clearly unconstitutional that would um, result in the confiscation of most firearms in the United States, um, there's not much you're going to do about it. So to the extent that there is a technical issue that makes some guns easier to use to kill lots of people, it's semi-automatic weapons with detachable magazines, right? Because you can drop the magazine out, throw a new one in, and um, shoot a lot of people that way. But that is 
pretty much all the handguns sold in the United States now. It's probably 85%, I think. It's um, revolvers make up a small number. And it's the majority of the rifles sold as well. Um, you know, bolt action hunting rifles, which are kind of my thing. Um, I'm not really into the you know, kind of pseudo military uh, type stuff so much. Um, or a very, very small share of what's sold. So if your interpretation of the Second Amendment is something that's going to result in the confiscation of you know, 85% of the firearms that are sold in 2023, it's probably not going to fly constitutionally. It's certainly not going to fly politically. Um, but what really is maddening about this is that on the other end of things, of the enforcement of actual crimes, we do just so little. You know, in Philadelphia, two-thirds of the gun cases are dismissed uh, without even being tried. And that's that's a new development. You know, 10 years ago, it was the other way around, where maybe one-third would get dismissed and two-thirds went to trial. Um, you know, in New York, uh, 90% of the people who are um, either convicted of murders or believed to be responsible for murders are people with prior criminal records, typically with prior violent felonies. Um, some enormous share of the homicides in this country are committed by people who are already on parole or probation for another crime. So. We kind of know, we literally know who the criminals are um, because almost all of the murders are convicted or committed by people who have, who have long arrest records, you know, typically um, five convictions and 10 or more arrests. Um, so they're not strangers to the system. And we see this in mass shootings too all the time where you know, this guy, six weeks before that, he had a SWAT team at his house because there was a bomb threat or something. And somehow they didn't, you know, get him on the list, even in the states that have red flag laws and that sort of thing. So there's stuff that we can do. Most of that doesn't have anything to do with technical issues related to this or that gun. And um, if people were more familiar with these things, I think we could have a more intelligent conversation about it. Because there are things policy-wise that I think could be done, um, including some things that some of my you know, pro-gun friends probably wouldn't like policy-wise. I think there's, I think there's a lot of room for federalism in uh, the gun debate that um, in the same way that we don't have the same rules for getting a parade permit in Manhattan as you do in Wyoming. You probably don't need to have exactly the same gun carry rules in both places either. And there are probably lots of places where it makes sense to prohibit carry like 6th Street in Austin and uh, the French Quarter and the Las Vegas Strip and places like that. You know, it's, it seems sensible and probably reasonable and probably not a violation of anything in the Bill of Rights to do those things. But the fact that we keep on having these conversations about whether it's a 12 round magazine or an eight round magazine or a 10 round magazine and, uh, or just these are go nowhere conversations that they don't actually do anything for us. And it's particularly grotesque when you know, people point to things like Sandy hook and say, well, if you know, we didn't have these kinds of weapons, then this massacre wouldn't have happened this way. These were little kids. Um, they were not going to overpower some guy who had a revolver, um, or had to use some kind of other weapon. Um, I always like to remind people that the worst school of massacre in American history didn't involve any guns at all. This guy who used bombs killed a bunch of kids in Bath, Michigan, back in 1920, I want to say it was. And um, so, yeah, I've got a big thing there on stuff that you probably need to know about the uh, gun debate and gun issues before you say something stupid, which people tend to do um, all the time when they talk about this issue. Yeah, no, and, and like I, I, I'm I'm generally on yours and Charlie's side of, of, of these debates. Um, um, sometimes for ideological reasons and sometimes for practical reasons, like just as you say, politically, there's just certain things you're not going to end up doing. So let's stop arguing about them. Like 
neither ideologically nor pragmatically do I have any problem with banning bump stocks. Uh, at the same time, they're so easy to MacGyver that like anybody who's, who wants a bump stock doesn't need to go to a store necessarily to buy one. They're going to be able to get one. It's actually an interesting one that I haven't, I didn't, don't think I put that one on the list. So bump stocks are a thing, but bump firing is a technique. And there are lots of people who can do it with just a standard stock on a gun. You can learn how to shoot that way. But, you know, I remember Charlie after that Vegas shooting, you know, saying, look, I never thought about banning bump stocks because it's such a stupid way to shoot a gun and it's so inaccurate. Um, but if you're opening up a window and the inaccuracy is not a problem because you're just shooting into a crowd, <laughs> then it's a, it's a sort of a different thing. I mean, I, I don't mean to be glib about this, but like there are things that like I, I, I am open to that probably raise some people's hackles on, on all of this stuff. But at the same time, I do think there's a certain, and I'm not accusing you of you or Charlie about this, but there is a, there's a problem with the asymmetry about this. And sometimes anti-gun liberal types go way too far in making this point because basically the, the pro-gun crowd will often point to really dumb, ignorant mistakes on the anti-gun side mm-hmm. and then say, these people don't even know what they're talking about. There's no reason to pay attention to them. And meanwhile, there are a bunch of dead kids, you know, someplace. And um, the idea of getting hyper-technical about these questions, I think, turns off a lot of people, you know. Um, I just said there are ways to argue about this without saying, oh, because you're a moron and you don't know that AR in AR-15 means Armalite and not assault rifle, um, I don't have to take your concerns about, you know, mass shooting at my office very seriously, whatever. Right. Although I think um, I would say that principally that error is on the other side where, I mean, part of my argument here is that we don't need to be having a conversation that is principally about technical aspects of firearms. Sure. And almost everything we hear from the gun control people is about that. And almost all of their proposals have to do with federally licensed firearms dealers and the people who do business with them who commit approximately zero crimes. Um, They're like the most law-abiding demographic in the United States pretty much. Um, of the people who are in jail right now and who had a gun with them at the time they committed their crime, the number who got it through a gun store or a gun show or some other retail source is like 3% or something. It's, it's super, super low. And usually that's going to be like a, a domestic violence kind of thing, right? It's not. Yeah. 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 Which is bad. <laughs> or it's someone who was committing a different kind of crime and just happened to have a gun with them at the time. Mm-hmm. People who carry a gun legally who also buy and sell drugs where they can't legally. And so that happens sometimes. So yeah, I think that um, if you want to make the conversation about, well, we need to focus on these kinds of guns because they have some kind of particular aspect to them that makes them particularly dangerous and prone to be used in crimes and mass shootings and stuff. Well, then you actually do have to get the stuff right. These guns actually have to be the thing that you're saying they are. So I remember uh, this woman named Connie Williams was a state senator in uh, Pennsylvania. She gave a speech about how you know, someone with a semi-automatic handgun can spray a hundred rounds in like nine seconds, she said, or something like that. And um, Connie happened to be the heir to the Hess oil fortune. And so <laughs> I bet her, I was like, I'll bet you everything in my bank account versus everything in your bank account that you cannot produce a person, you know, 
special forces, Olympic shooter, mafia hitman, whatever, who can shoot a hundred rounds out of this gun in 12 seconds. Like you're saying, it's just, it's, it's a made up thing. It's just not true. And she did not take my bet, which is why I'm still working for a living. So yeah, if that's going to be your thing, then um, you have to get that stuff right. And that's why it really matters when people are saying, well, it's not the, um, you know, it's the power of this kind of rifle. And this is an especially powerful rifle. Well, then you have to get the rankings kind of right there. Because if you want to ban everything that's as powerful as a 5.56 or more, that's all the rifles, essentially, except for 22 rimfires and things like that. And um, now some people would be perfectly happy with that, which, fine, okay. Um, you know, the people in this debate I actually have the most respect for on the other side are the people who say, yes, the Second Amendment says what it says. And I think it's antiquated and we should probably get rid of it. That's a conversation we can have. The Constitution can be amended. That's why we have a process for it. And frankly, there's a better argument for doing that than there is for a lot of the other things that these people propose, um, which are you know, essentially things that are going to inconvenience people who buy guns legally and use them legally and do nothing to you know, uh, have any effect on crime whatsoever. Of course, they don't want to have that argument because it's a losing argument for their side. They know politically it's impossible to do. And so we end up with these dumb discussions about the technicalities of this or that firearm featuring people who don't know anything about it. And, um, you know, I, I think it's sort of like um, if we're going to have a debate about health insurance regulation and health insurance subsidies, which we're constantly having, and you were someone who didn't know what insurance was, you maybe learn what insurance is before you get into the debate or you know if you've never been to a doctor's office or seen a medical bill or something like that maybe maybe do a little research and uh and learn some things so um i think that these issues matter principally because the gun control side wants them to matter and is trying to make them matter and so i want to explain how these things actually work and where that actually fits in the debate which I think ultimately is not very prominently. I mean, the mm-hmm. debate really should be about uh, law enforcement and behavior, um, how we deal with people who commit lower level crimes and um, seem likely to commit more serious crimes in the future, and um, you know, how we go about sorting those out from other kinds of offenders. Because you can't really, you know, you can't lock people up on pre crime charges. Right. Um, but there is a kind of predictable escalation of, you know, because most people don't get, you know, premeditated homicide as their first crime or their first arrest. You know, it's shoplifting, then it's robbery, then it's mugging, then it's aggravated assault, and then eventually it ends up being murder. Um, so there should be better ways to intervene in this stuff. And it also works the other way around, which is that you don't always arrest someone for the murder they did. You get them for the turnstile jumping, you know, and in New York learned that, you know, you know, in the 90s, whereas they turned out that if you're willing to jump turnstiles, you're also willing to do a lot of other things. And if you get busted for jumping a turnstile, maybe they won't take you to jail, but they will look you up and see if you have any warrants out for you. And they got a lot of people very easily that way who deserve to be locked up. Um, no, I, look, I mean, we, 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 should, we should probably do a whole episode on magic because I have strong views on, 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 on magical thinking. And But like one of the best examples of it is on the gun stuff, um, I've taken to listening very closely whenever, like Al Sharpton is going, has, has been showing some personal growth in recent years and he likes to attack sort of super woke people as being bad for the Democratic Party and all that and I salute him for it. Um, I will never fully forgive the guy, but he's, he's, I think he's a better person than he was 30 years ago for sure. And, um, but it's funny where he's making a good point 
that Democrats and liberals should listen to, where he'll say, look, if you're going to condemn police violence, um, you also have to condemn uh, violence by, uh, you know, black people in inner cities. But he won't say black people in inner cities. What he'll say is, if we're going to be opposed to police brutality and police violence and name specific policemen, whatever, then we also have to be opposed to gun violence. And, and they always, and they're like when Biden went to New York a couple of years ago um, to talk about, you know, the, the murder and whatnot, it makes it sound like sort of like the guy in the jerk who talks about the cans and how much, you know, <laughs> or Steve Martin thinks he just hates cans. Right. And it's like, these guns are going around killing people. They won't talk about the fact that someone's pulling the triggers. It's the guns themselves that are doing it. And that's a form of magical thinking, right? Yeah. It's the, you know, you don't name the thing and uh, the thing doesn't have to be thought about. And uh, yeah, I mean, and the racial aspect of Or our, imbue the thing, the physical thing, as having talismatic right. power independent of human will, right? Right, yeah. It's idolatry. Um, yeah, the... Part of, I think, what drives the conversation is that the, the racial features of our crime situation um, are very difficult for people to discuss. Um, you know, there's there's a reason that race is a sensitive topic in our country, and there's a reason why um, the intersection of race and crime and racial stereotypes is a very sensitive topic and has to be approached in an intelligent and um, decent kind of way. Um, but until um, we're willing to um, acknowledge certain realities, which is that African-American men who are about 7% of the population constitute the majority of people arrested for murders and um, lots of other violent crimes, and also the majority of people, of course, who suffer these crimes, um, you know, it's, um, you're much, much more likely to be a homicide victim if you're, if you're black than if you're not. And um, so there's something that's happening in these particular communities. And... This is maybe an essay I should try to write one of these days. Um, this is one of those situations in which the adjective is doing uh, more work than it needs to because we say black or we say African-American. And that's not really the case, right? Because we're talking about a couple, a handful of very specific communities. You know, the great majority of black people in the United States don't live in communities that have really, really high crime rates. Um, and they don't live in places where there's a lot of um, just sort of, you know, semi-amateur gunplay uh, on the streets the way they are in some neighborhoods in this country. Um, you know, you're talking about uh, if the rate for African-Americans is, you know, seven or eight times what it is for, for white folks. But you're talking about, you know, seven out of a million versus one out of a million. You know, you're not talking about seven out of ten versus one out of ten. And um, it's worth keeping those statistical realities in mind, I think that it tells you a lot of the people who are criminal offenders have something in common, um, but that doesn't, the reverse of that doesn't necessarily apply to mean that this entire community has a problem with criminal offenders because it doesn't. Um, it's, um, it's a couple of, uh, a couple of particular places. Right. And that's a problem cutting both ways, right? Because it's a problem with crude people on the right talking about, I, you know, the phrase black crime, which I, I, I agree with and take your point about it being a crude phrase and all that kind of stuff. But it also is a problem on the left with people talking about, you know, black incarceration or black arrests when, you know, you're like, you're saying 
that they were, there's a strong effort out there to imply that people are arrested because they're black and not because they shot people. And, um, I'm very, very, very opposed to arresting people because they're black. (laughs) I'm not opposed to arresting people who shoot people. The crime rate among, you know, married African-American women who are 50 year old college graduates living in Utah is zero. I mean, there's, there's no crime in that community. And, um, there are lots of folks who, um, are black and check a lot of other demographic boxes who don't have, um, any kind of appreciable crime rates. You know, it tends to be violent crime tends to be a man's game. You get a lot of women. I know that some women do get arrested for murder. It tends to be a young person's game. You know, you don't get a lot of people over 45, um, and really a lot of people over 35, um, involved in that sort of stuff. It, um, and it tends to plague certain communities more than others. And it's not, it's, it's hard to break out in a lot of ways because every city is different. You know, every city has its own different ecosystem and every um, rural area is different too. And, you know, you've got some places that are rural areas that have really, really high crime rates and, um, and some places that don't. Uh, you have some cities that have really, really high crime rates and some cities that don't. And we always, by the way, part of our conversation is so weird about this that um, we always tend to misidentify which cities it is. Like, I guess because New York's the biggest city in America, everyone thinks of it having a very, very high crime rate. It has a higher crime rate than it should, certainly, but um, compared to, say, you know, Cleveland or I mean, St. Louis, I guess, has the highest murder rate in the country, but also places like you know San Antonio, Houston, and uh, places like that, much more dangerous than New York or Los Angeles. Um, you know, places like Odessa, Texas, which is not a huge place, has a disproportionately very high uh, violent crime rate. It's got a lot of young men uh, because of the uh, oil business down there. Yeah, um, you yeah. can you can kind of chart the uh, the health of the uh, American energy sector or the output of it by by violent crime rates in Odessa, Texas. Because <laughs> um, the more people you pack down in there and they're living in tents, um, you know, the, the crazier Saturday night gets at the, the local bar. Yeah, look, I mean, at the end of the day, regardless of race, young men are among the biggest drivers of all sorts of public policy problems. <laughs> and yes. um, I and certainly I'm, was, and I've aged out, unfortunately. But, uh, yeah, no, me too, me too. But like, uh, this was something that I remember James Q. Wilson and Nick Eberstadt talking about 20 years ago about the concerns about rising, about what it'll do to Chinese society when you have um, a really disproportionate male to female ratio. And men get weird when there aren't enough women around. And I think we can all attest to that in one way or another. And, um, uh, and I've seen this why you went to Goucher. Uh, there's lots of reasons why I went to Goucher, but, uh, the, um, uh, actually there are lots of reasons why I didn't go to any other schools, but, um, uh, <laughs> um, the, um, the, the, like the wild West, you know, one of the reasons why it was a wild West is that you had 120 males for every hundred females and yeah. men start becoming perform- performatively violent when they don't have marriage prospects. And that's, doesn't reflect well on men, but it's, you know, take it up with Darwin. It's not my doing. And, um, you know, and women are a big reason why men become civilized. And again, there's all sorts of sexist gendered stuff involved in that statement, but it doesn't mean it's untrue. Um, so anyway, all right, my friend, um, we, Adam is going to kill us because we've gone 90 minutes in a 60 minute podcast. Um, and, uh, but it's great to have you. Um, I trust, we didn't even get to talk about your, your column on fatherhood or, or family, which we should have done. Um, um, 
but I, I trust everybody is good and well in the um, Williamson household. And um, it's great to have you back on. We are at grandma's. Are you really? Is that, are you allowed to say what location that is? Florida. Florida. Okay. I was thinking maybe Canada and I didn't want to get you in trouble. Um, uh, um, are you going to see a uh, Charlie cook while you're down there driving around in his golf cart? Um, you know, actually I was thinking about, um, looking him up at some point. And, um, so, you know, we, we discontinued the mad dogs and Englishman podcast, of course, when I, when I left national review, but, um, I, if you remember this, there's a bar called mad dogs and Englishman in Tampa. Yeah. Yeah. And there was this weird internet story that um, yeah. Charlie and I had received COVID bailout money to support Mad Dog's Englishman. Yeah, which is awesome. And um, so we were thinking about doing a one-off, one-time podcast from the bar there at the uh, at Mad Dog's You should, for sure. And, and do it as part um, of his show. You know, do it as the part of the Charlie Cook podcast, which people should listen to. Um, maybe we would. Well, we'll think about something else, maybe. But, uh, I know. I maybe we'll, do a, we'll do a joint effort, maybe. And... Um, and the podcast will get increasingly incoherent the longer we spend at the bar, of course. Um, no, what I loved about that was Charlie's very dry British response to it, which basically reduced the original claim down to subatomic particles because in every regard it was <laughs> untrue. <laughs> we don't own a bar. The podcast isn't named for the bar, <laughs> but you know, just all the way down. Um, but it's like these people have never heard of Noel Coward. <laughs> All right, my friend, thank you for doing this. And uh, obviously we'll have you back on soon. And uh, we are continue to be delighted that you were part of the Dispatch family. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Okay, so uh, Kevin has left the studio. And um, I want to, I wanna again, thank Adam, who came out of the woodwork to help me do this. Um, I just know that, like, uh, like, I look at running errands and stuff and, and during this weird week between Christmas and New Year's that I'm, I'm looking for fresh podcast content. And so I just assumed that many of our listeners were as well. And I chose to do this and, um, and, and Adam jumped on the grenade. So uh, always good to talk to Kevin. We just kept talking after we stopped recording. Um, there are all sorts of other things that um, I could talk to Kevin about for a great deal of time. Um, fortunately, I'll have opportunities to do that in the future. I hope everyone had a wonderful Christmas and Hanukkah. Um, if Kwanzaa's your bag, I hope that's great too. I hope you have a great new year's. Um, but as longtime listeners know, um, um, I think new year's is the dumbest, worst holiday. Um, and, um, like, I don't mind having it off and all that kind of stuff, but like the th things I, uh, miss about my youth, um, there's a long list, but one of them isn't like this social need to find some date or some some cool thing to do on new year's Eve. It's dumb. It's better to be at home watching an old movie, having a drink at home. And, um, um, and the ball drop in times square is perhaps the single dumbest mass ritual in all of America. And, um, and I only did it because there was a girl involved and she had friends and they wanted to go. And I was mortified as a New Yorker for even being there. And I will never go again. Um, but we can talk about all that another time. Um, thanks again for listening. Thanks for all your support of the dispatch and, um, I'll see you next time.
Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.